This is a history podcast, albeit a music one. And being a history podcast, I try my darnest to fact check everything I say. And if I'm inserting an opinion or a theory, I'll let you know. With that all being said, I remember back in July of 2006, sitting in my family's living room watching VH1. They had this program on called Storytellers. On that program, basically artists would perform a few songs and talk about the history slash meaning of those tunes. Fortunately for me, the band featured on that episode was the 90s grunge icons Pearl Jam, a band I had recently become a fan of due to the release of their self-titled album just a couple months before. As much as I loved the band's musical performance on that episode, I loved frontman Eddie Vedder's commentary. Of all the interesting commentaries he shared in between songs, the soundbite that has stayed with me all these years occurred at the beginning of the set when Vedder introduced it, saying, quote, Never let the truth get in the way of a good story. I hope you can process that quote before I tell this next little anecdote. On January 12, 1986, a so-called teenager and tri-sport athlete named Scott went to see the legendary hardcore punk band Black Flag perform in Long Beach, California. At the same concert, a 21-year-old, I'm sorry, a 20-year-old New Jersey transplant named Robert stood in attendance. Scott and Robert got to talking, and as legend has it, the two of them discovered they were dating the same girl. Following this realization, Scott and Robert decided to room together in the apartment that housed that girlfriend when she moved to Texas. The more time they spent together, the more they learned about each other. It turned out that Scott was a hell of a singer, and Robert could hold his own on the bass guitar. Their jam sessions prompted them to form a band, of which they found the other bandmates, well, mediocre. So consequently, they canned the uninspiring guitarist and drummer. Then sometime in the latter half of the 80s, Scott and Robert ventured out to catch some local music and saw a band whose drummer they found mesmerizing. They ultimately recruited that drummer, Eric, to join forces with them. However, even with the addition of the hard-hitting drummer, they still remained without a guitarist. So Robert summoned his older brother, Dean, to finalize the lineup. The band played hard rock and funk music and settled on the name Mighty Joe Young. As the 80s shifted into the 90s, Mighty Joe Young started gigging frequently in San Diego, developing a strong fan base there, and they tested the waters along the coast of the rest of the Golden State. Their breakout occurred sometime in the early 90s when they opened for the Henry Rollins band at the Whiskey A Go-Go in West Hollywood. The frontman and namesake, Henry Rollins, funny enough, was the frontman for Black Flag when Scott and Robert saw them years before. Their solid performance that night helped them gained traction and ultimately led to a record deal with Atlantic Records. However, upon being signed, Mighty Joe Young found out that the Chicago-based blues guitarist of the same name had already copyrighted it, forcing the band to seek another name. For their new name, they wanted to represent the oil treatment company, STP, as its logo had become part of popular culture due to its sponsor partnership with NASCAR beginning in the early 70s. The band initially went through multiple names with the acronym STP, but eventually Scott Weiland, Robert DeLeo, Dean DeLeo, and Eric Kratz settled on the name Stone Temple Pilots. In late 1991, Stone Temple Pilots got into the studio to record their debut album Core with Atlanta-based producer Brendan O'Brien at the helm. O'Brien had already established himself as an integral part of the alternative rock recording process, having worked as either producer, engineer, or mixer with the Black Crows, Red Hot Chili Peppers, and the previously mentioned Pearl Jam. According to Scott Weiland, the record only took three weeks to record. 
on September 29, 1992, Stone Temple Pilots released Core. The album is grungy, gritty, and gutsy. Stone Temple Pilots introduced themselves to the world on the album's opening with Scott singing a cappella into Dean's guitar pickup the unforgettable lines, quote, I am smelling like the rose that somebody gave me on my birthday deathbed. I am smelling like the rose that somebody gave me because I'm dead and bloated. As 1992 turned to 1993, Stone Temple Pilots became rock stars as the abrasive LP hit number three on the Billboard Hot 200. To date, the album has sold well north of 8 million copies and is the 8th highest selling album released in 1992. The album featured three hit singles, Sex Type Thing, Creep, and Plush. The latter two became crossover hits, peaking at number 2 and number 1 on the rock charts respectively. Despite Core's enormous success, critics and fans did not see eye to eye on the quality of the record. While not too many critics gave the album harsh scores overall, a consensus seemed to exist among music journalists that Stone Temple Pilots were, well, ripoffs. Deborah Frost of Entertainment Weekly said the album, quote, sounds like it has crash-landed Pearl Jam into Alice in Chains. While giving the band a backhanded compliment, Robert Criscow of The Village Voice gave a shopping list of bands that Stone Temple Pilots ripped off, including Pearl Jam and the grunge supergroup Temple of the Dog. However, more than any review, the most telling piece of media that vividly represented the divide between fans and critics occurred in the January 1994 issue of Rolling Stone magazine. Critics named Stone Temple Pilots the worst new band, but readers voted Stone Temple Pilots as the best new band. So, with the media heavily criticizing a hard alternative rock band for lack of originality, while at the same time, rock music's fan base adored that same band, Something earth-shattering occurred that forever changed the trajectory of headbanging music. Butt Rock was born. I'm Dove Brenner and this is Hot Cakes from a 90s Stand. And today for my fourth Hot Takes last Random Topic episode, I will be naming my Mount Rushmore of Butt Rock. While Core is the godfather of butt rock, Stone Temple Pilots are not a butt rock band. Their sophomore effort, Purple, largely abandoned the sludge metal vibes found on their debut in favor of a more refined grunge sound with more diversity including psychedelic rock, blues, and country rock. Purple is considered not only Stone Temple Pilots' best studio album, but also a defining 90s rock album. Their third album, Tiny Music, Songs from the Vatican Gift Shop, shows a steep evolution from the vibes of Core, with their 1996 record straying away from grunge, featuring instead neo-psychedelia, jangle pop, glam rock, jazz, and shoegaze. While Tiny Music, Songs from the Vatican Gift Shop, received mixed reviews from critics upon release in 1996, the album has aged well, with the AV Club referencing it in 2016, stating, quote, Stone Temple Pilots got weirder and better than anyone gave them credit for. In 2021, Pitchfork all but rescinded their initial harsh review of the album, 
giving it a respectable 7.4 out of 10 and calling it, quote, glammy and sexy in a way that would make Seattle's gatekeepers blush. So, if Core is a butt rock album, but those other two albums I mentioned aren't butt rock albums, making Stone Temple Pilots not a butt rock band, then what is butt rock? Well, a simple definition would be over-commercialized hard rock abhorred by critics. But as y'all know by now, I don't care much for simplicity when it comes to sacred tasks, such as defining popular music terms. So to understand what makes butt rock butt rock, we have to first discuss what isn't butt rock. Many people who have heard the term will say that butt rock began in the 80s with hair metal bands like Motley Crue, Poison, and Twisted Sister. While part of my simple definition fits with those groups, I wouldn't say that hair metal inherently includes an over-commercialized sound. Additionally, with its distinct features of cross-dressing, big hair, big gang vocals, and the monopolization of the power ballad, hair metal is kind of its own thing and belongs exclusively to the 1980s. The true precursors of Golden Age era butt rock gained peak visibility within the mainstream in the early 90s, just before Stone Temple Pilots blew up. This era's top bands came from two sides, yet shared the same umbrella label of alternative rock. On the one side, the Seattle sound grunge. The big four of these bands, of course, are Nirvana, Pearl Jam, Alice in Chains, and Soundgarden, all four of which are four of my all-time favorite bands. On the other side, Funk Metal. That side's signature bands included the Red Hot Chili Peppers, Faith No More, Rage Against the Machine, Living Color, and Primus. Those five bands, also five of my all-time favorite bands. I have a lot of favorite bands, okay? In addition to the ambiguous label of alt-rock that the media slapped on them, another thing they had in common, critics loved them. Except Primus. During the first half of the 90s, between these nine artists, they received 24 Grammy Awards, 14 of their records received a four-star review or higher from Rolling Stone, and that publication included five of their albums on their most recent list of the 500 greatest albums. The depth of their artistry, skill, and originality is what made those artists so special and turned many of them into timeless, bonafide legends. Just a few snippets of what I'm referring to include Kurt Cobain of Nirvana songwriting, Pearl Jam's blend of punk and classic rock, Lane Staley and Jerry Cantrell of Allison Chain's haunting harmonies, Flea of the Red Hot Chili Peppers' punk funk pop slapping, Tom Morello of Rage Against the Machine's innovative guitar style that made his playing sound like anything except a guitar, Vernon Reed of Living Color's lightning speed on guitar, Chris Cornell of Soundgarden's piercing yet soothing powerhouse vocals, Mike Patton of Faith No More's unprecedented vocal versatility, and whatever the fuck it was that Primus was doing. I promise I'm now done with my slobbering standing of early 90s alternative rock. Anyways, back to Stone Temple Pilots. While their debut core is a banger for sure, I can't in good faith say it approximates the artistic depth of any of the bands I just mentioned. Well, maybe Primus. So, due to their merit and love from critics, those nine previously mentioned bands cannot find themselves classified as butt rock. Let's fast forward now to the late 90s. Once again, two sides of alternative rock dominated popular hard rock, obtained huge pop audiences, and sold tens of millions of records. And not coincidentally, these two genres descend directly from grunge and funk metal. The two major subgenres of the late 90s hard rock I'm referring to, post-grunge and new metal. Post-grunge is exactly as it sounds. 
It took grunge's crunchy guitar tone, slower tempo, and powerful vocals, but removed the factors that made grunge rough around the edges. Post-grunge songs largely removed their predecessor's dark lyricism, social justice advocacy, technically skilled guitar solos, and experimentalism in favor of lyrics appealing to the common man, simple chord progressions, and accessible song structures. From a 2023 perspective, the title New Metal seems like a misnomer, but I guess when it was new in the late 90s, it made sense. I mean, it was metal. It was new. Yeah. Math. Anywho, the metal subgenre took the syncopated rhythms of funk metal, as well as its key vocal trait of combining singing and rapping, but removed the intricate guitar parts, instead opting to incorporate turntables. Lyrically, while both metal subgenres got angsty, funk metal tended to have a purpose with their aggression. Rage Against the Machine was railing against imperialistic injustices. Living Color sm- uh, spoke out vehemently against racism, and even the Red Hot Chili Peppers spoke out aggressively against the Ku Klux Klan. The lyricism of new metal largely seemed angry for the sake of being angry, without a justifiable impetus. While the vast majority of butt rock bands find the labels of new metal or post-grunge attached to them, being a part of that subgenre doesn't inherently classify a band as butt rock. Post-grunge bands like the Foo Fighters and Silverchair, as well as new metal bands such as Korn and Linkin Park, released music that satisfied critics, performed well in the charts, and have sold roughly a combined 152 million records. So, now that we have established what is not butt rock, I will give you my long-winded idea of what does constitute butt rock. Butt rock is a pejorative for hard rock bands who enjoyed monumental success primarily in the late 90s and early 2000s. These bands took the most accessible elements of grunge and funk metal and accompanied it with gimmicky, often problematic lyrics that appealed to the masses. While their profitability is undeniable, as I alluded to earlier, But rock bands lack the originality and artistic depth of their grunge and funk metal predecessors, opting for a more superficial sound and ambiguous ethos to target a larger, albeit mainly male, audience. The last question I will ask before I unveil my Mount Rushmore, why is the pejorative called butt rock? Well, no one knows for sure, but the most reputable theory comes from the publication, The Houston Press who explained that apparently in the mid-90s, rock radio stations would advertise the music they played as, quote, rock, nothing but rock. Of course, the mid-90s when post-grunge replaced grunge as the predominant hard rock genre in popular music, so people started started mocking the tagline by describing those bands as, quote, nothing but rock. Obviously adding an extra T to the conjunction, but. Now for my shameless disclaimer. For my Mount Rushmore of butt rock, I will facetiously relate each butt rock band to a particular president found on the actual Mount Rushmore in South Dakota. It will be light, perhaps humorous, not really entirely serious. So please don't think I am actually comparing Abraham Lincoln to whatever butt rock band I compare Abraham Lincoln to. Anyways, as I sculpt into existence my Mount Rushmore of butt rock, I'll start with a taste of nostalgia. Sharing the honorable mentions of butt rock that, while legendary in our millennial hearts, will not find their faces on my sacred memorial. Some bands I regrettably left off include Puddle of Mud, Bush, Mudvayne, Three Doors Down, Breaking Benjamin, Hinder, Seether, Disturbed, and Trapped. If you're like me and hearing the names of those bands gives you a rush of dopamine, you should see a therapist. Just kidding. 
If hearing those bands instantly brings back solid memories, stay tuned as I reveal my Mount Rushmore of butt rock. Our 26th president, Teddy Roosevelt, is known for many things. Among his many accomplishments was changing the role of the president. The generation before Roosevelt's presidency is referred to as the Gilded Age, which lasted from the late 1870s until the beginning of the 20th century. During the Gilded Age, the president did not influence public policy much. Instead, the executive office prioritized patronage. When Teddy Roosevelt took over the presidency following the assassination of William McKinley in 1901, the role of the president changed forever as he led the U.S. towards progressivism and admittedly, quote, did greatly broaden the use of executive power. As Teddy Roosevelt took a bold approach in bringing the American presidency into the 20th century, Papa Roach took butt rock into the 21st with fervor on par with the bull moose president. Thus, the third face to the right on my Mount Rushmore of butt rock has to be Jacoby Shandix, representing Papa Roach. Eight years before the angry acapella opening cut its way into the hearts and minds of the masses, Papa Roach formed in the Sacramento Valley and even had a trombone player. Shortly after their performance of Jimi Hendrix's Fire did not result in them winning their high school talent show, the band replaced their trombonist with a metal guitarist named Jerry Horton from a neighboring high school. Besides, Shandix on vocals and Horton on guitar. Who really cares about the rest of the members, to be honest? The band released their first demo in 1995, titled Caca Bonita, which translates to Pretty Poop. So as you can tell, the band was destined for butt rock stardom. In 1997, Papa Roach released their debut self-produced album, Old Friends from Young Years, which was produced by their bassist, Tobin Esperance's father. Okay, so I guess we do care about other members of Papa Roach. During that era of Papa Roach, beyond the members I've mentioned already, we also had Dave Buckner on drums. As the band's fan base increased, so did their determination to make it big, demonstrated by the two EPs released in the late 90s. They finally felt their big break occurred after Warner Brothers offered them a deal. However, in the midst of recording with the label, Warner Brothers dismissed Papa Roach, devastating the 20-something soon-to-be butt rock darlings. Finally, in 1999, DreamWorks Records signed the band and they released their major label debut, Infest, on April 25th, 2000. A new metal classic and an all-time top five butt rock album for sure, Infest sounds like a bunch of high school slackers that just tried Steel Reserve for the first time, snuck into a professional recording studio, and poured out everything in their soul into their music. Is that a compliment or a roast? Who knows? Anyways, the album sounds like a more aggressive yet simplified version of Faith No More meets Early Red Hot Chili Peppers meets Metallica. Infest went triple platinum thanks to the success of the album's second track, Last Resort. Last Resort, a top three all-time butt rock song, peaked at 57 on the Billboard Hot 100, topped the rock charts for seven weeks, and found its way to top 10 pop success in Austria, Portugal, the UK, Germany, Iceland, and the Dominican Republic. In the aughts and the 2010s, Papa Roach were all the rage. 18 of their singles during that time reached the top five on the rock charts, and that includes their 2004 crossover hit Scars, which peaked at 15 on the Billboard Hot 100. Love them or hate them, you'll be hard-pressed to find a rock-loving millennial that didn't go through a Papa Roach phase. So then, why do I consider Papa Roach butt rock? 
As much as I would have loved to go through and listened intentionally to every album that Jacoby Shandix graced the world with, I focused on two Papa Roach albums, Getting Away With Murder and the previously mentioned Infest. While the latter endears itself to me for the palpable passion from the band, it's largely formulaic and safe. While I'm sure Papa Roach wanted to emulate funk metal like Rage Against the Machine and Faith No More, instrumentally nothing stands out. Shandix is a pretty mediocre singer and the lyrics are pretty silly. Getting Away With Murder, on the other hand, is just pretty brutal. Every song sounds like a slightly altered version of the previous, with the exception of the song's hit single, Scars, which has its own issues. On both these albums, guitarist Jerry Horton seems married to basic and repetitious power chords in drop D loaded with distortion. Shandix, for his part, through horrendous lyrics, seems committed to disingenuous, cringeworthy self-pity. In the previously mentioned hit single, Scars, Shandix proclaims, quote, I tear my heart open. I sew myself shut. My weakness is that I care too much. Literally pitiful. And on their third single, Between Angels and Insects, from Infest, Shandix rails against materialism with the mighty chorus in which he cries, quote, Take my money. Take my possessions. Take my obsession. I don't need that shit. Jacoby, you know I love you. But isn't money, like, the whole reason you're singing this? With all that being said, Papa Roach fucking rocks. Hear me out. Sure, the lyrics, music, and vocals are mid, but tell me that when you hear the opening to Last Resort, you can't feel an adrenaline rush coming that may result in your gladiator sports skills increasing by sevenfold. And if you're a self-identifying millennial, if the chorus of Scars doesn't remind you of a middle school-slash-high school-slash-undergrad breakup, were you really born between the years 1981 and 1996? While Papa Roach's music from their heyday may belong in a time capsule to understand the early 2000s and the future, their image, hooks, and energy belong squarely in our heart and, of course, on the Mount Rushmore of butt rock. Our third president of the United States, Thomas Jefferson's legacy in the founding of the United States as a constitutional republic is undeniable. As a president, however, perhaps the most significant aspect of his presidency, the Louisiana Purchase of 1803, an acquisition in which he oversaw that resulted in the size of the country nearly doubling. As President Jefferson greatly expanded the size of the, of the United States, the next ban on my Mount Rushmore greatly expanded Buttrock's presence by gifting it to our northern neighbors in Canada. Therefore, the Albertan butt rock heroes Nickelback reside to the right of Papa Roach on the Mount Rushmore with their respect with their representative face, none other than Mr. Chad Kroger. In the early 90s, hailing from Hannah, Alberta, before being baptized as Nickelback, Chad Kroger, along with his brother Mike, cousin Brandon, and friend Ryan Peake, formed a band covering Canadian college rock and called themselves Village Idiot. In 1995, Village Idiot changed their name to Nickelback, taken from a common phrase Mike would say to customers while working at Starbucks. The line being, quote, Would you like your Nickelback? With Chad on vocals slash lead guitar, Ryan Peake on rhythm guitar, Mike on bass, and Brandon on drums, the band headed west to British Columbia and recorded their debut full-length studio album Curve in May of 1996. The post-grunge album, which sounds like the bastard child of Metallica's The Black Album and Core, didn't get too much attention in the early going, and its retrospective reviews are pretty tough. For example, the Rolling Stone album guide gave it one and a half stars. Ouch. But their second album, The State, released in 1998, did see the band get an improved score of two stars from the Rolling Stone 
Magazine Album Guide. After signing a record deal with EMI, The State was re-released in 2000 and introduced Nickelback to mainstream success, charting on the Billboard Hot 200 in August of 2000. Fitting that the band entered the public consciousness at the beginning of the new millennium, for reasons I'll get to in a bit. Anyways, early in the 21st century, the band increased their exposure by touring with several popular rock bands, including our friends Three Doors Down and Stone Temple Pilots. Nickelback continued to climb the mountain in March of 2001 when they won their first Juno Award, which is basically a Canadian Grammy, for Best New Group. Later in 2001, the band reached the top of the Butt Rock Mountain when their third studio album, the post-grunge classic Silver Side Up, was released. Another top five Butt Rock album, just as Papa Roach's Last Resort forever infested the ears of the world upon release, Silver Side Up's first single, How You Remind Me, cling to the ears of every rock fan in North America like a moth to a flame. On December 22nd of that year, Nickelback made history when How You Remind Me hit number one on the Billboard Hot 100, becoming the heaviest song since Guns N' Roses' Sweet Child of Mine released in 1987 to hit number one on that chart. While Sweet Child of Mine certainly has some gnarly moments, there is no question that in the aggregate, How You Remind Me is heavier for sure, making it to date the heaviest song to chart that high. The rest of the aughts were very good commercially to Nickelback. They enjoyed eight top 40 singles on the Billboard Hot 100, six number one tunes on the rock charts, and all three subsequent albums landed on the top six within the Billboard Hot 200. With nearly 40 million albums sold, in 2009, Billboard ranked them as the top rock band of the aughts. When I told people I was doing this episode, a lot of people were not familiar with the term butt rock, which is understandable since I myself hadn't heard the term prior to July of 2022. As soon as I mentioned Nickelback as a prime example of the term, the light went off for people. So, why is Nickelback so synonymous with butt rock? Well, critics absolutely despise them. Metacritic is a website that, according to them, aggregates music, game, TV, and movie reviews from leading critics. Two of the band's biggest albums of the aughts, their 2005 mega-hit For All the Right Reasons and its 2008 follow-up Dark Horse, received scores from Metacritic of 41 and 49, respectively. As per my definition of butt rock, the public couldn't get enough of Nickelback during the early 2000s, in large part because the band crafted the special sauce whose ingredients were earworms, unmistakable hard rock, and attitude. Not sure what that attitude was, though, to be honest. That special sauce was also basic as hell. After How You Remind Me, as many Nickelback detractors will tell you, every song basically sounds the same. Their chord structures, basic. The song structures, formulaic. And any time they try to demonstrate any musical depth, they just sound like a neophyte high school musician that just learned something interesting. Despite every disparaging thing I just said, Nickelback fucking rules. How You Remind Me is a damn good song. If you disagree with me, I'll fight you. Just kidding. I'm 30 now and my joints hurt. Anyways, How You Remind Me is catchy, abrasive, and dynamic. And shout out to Chad Kroger for sounding Canadian as fuck on the word sorry. Also, the lyrics are fire too. If singing along with the line, quote, cause living with me must have damn near killed you, then let me offer you my pity. Also, while people lampooned their 2006 hit single Rockstar, I think the song is a memorable tongue-in-cheek anthem that satirizes the media's glorification of the excesses associated with rock stardom. Also, Billy fucking Gibbons of motherfucking ZZ Top is featured in the song. Come on. And don't get me started on animals. The drums are like hot for teacher for millennials, and the rhythm of Kroger's vocals flow like his luscious locks. 
So while Nickelback is perhaps the most hated band of the 21st century, no photograph of the Mount Rushmore of butt rock could be real without Chad Kroger's beautiful face. There exists very little debate amongst presidential scholars that our 16th president of the United States, Abraham Lincoln, is the greatest. President Lincoln's accomplishments are countless. One of those major accomplishments includes preserving the Union during one of the nation's, mo the nation's most precarious times, the Civil War. As the leader of the United States of America during the most polarizing time in the country's history, the perception of President Lincoln at the time of his presidency was inherently controversial. In terms of controversy, the honor of Butt Rock's undisputed champion goes to none other than Jacksonville's finest new metal band, Limp Bizkit. And his wife, Fred Durst's face, along with the backside logo of his baseball cap, will sit furthest to the right on my Mount Rushmore of Butt Rock. Named after a friend's description of being high, Limp Bizkit formed in 1994 in North Florida. The initial members included John Otto on drums, Sam Rivers on bass, and of course the mastermind of butt rock, Fred Durst on vocals. After writing a few songs, the trio expanded their sound to include guitarists, but didn't find a permanent guitarist until they discovered Wes Borland. According to Borland, Fred Durst had a vision of blending as many genres as possible, which perhaps explains the diverse background of Limb Bizkit's OG lineup. Sam Rivers comes from a hard rock background growing up listening to grunge and metal, John Otto, at the time of the band's formation, studied jazz drumming at an art school in Jacksonville. Wes Borland came from the most diverse music background. Growing up in Richmond, Virginia, he distanced himself from the country influences of members of his family and church community, instead finding love in blues, metal, punk, hardcore punk, hip-hop, and jazz. As a teenager, Fred Durst found his artistic calling in experimenting with the hip-hop essentials of DJing, rapping, breakdancing, and beatboxing. Limp Bizkit quickly gained a following in Jacksonville, frequently performing at the popular local music venue, Milk Bar. Of course, in their early days, they couldn't pay the bills solely on the earnings of their local gigs, so Fred Durst's main source of income came from his skill as a tattoo artist. This worked to the benefit of the band in November of 1995, when another new metal band, Korn, came to town and performed at the Milk Bar. Following the show, Korn's bassist, nicknamed Fieldy, and their guitarist, Brian Welch, summoned Durst's services. The members of Korn and Durst clicked, so much so that a year later when the band returned to Jacksonville, the three of them linked up. This time, Durst handed Fieldy Limb Biscuit's demo, who presented it to their producer, Ross Robinson. Robinson liked what he heard and hooked the band up with an opening spot on tour with mammoth names in the industry, the legendary alt-metal band Deftones, and the iconic hip-hop trio House of Pain. Following the conclusion of that tour, House of Pain split up, and the hip-hop group's turntablist, DJ Lethal, joined forces with Limb Bizkit, and the band's most notable lineup was solidified. Shortly after, the band signed with Flip slash Interscope Records, and on July 1st, 1997, the band released their first studio album, $3 Bill Y'all. Driven by the success of the band's nearly unlistenable cover of George Michael's Faith, the album became a hit, peaking at number 22 in the Billboard Hot 200 and selling nearly 2 million copies by the turn of the century. Overall, the album's instrumentalists take the peak intensity found on Rage Against the Machine's debut studio album and stretch it over an hour, backed up, of course, by Fred Durst's even more aggressive vocal performances. Limb Bizkit's follow-up, their 1999 record, Significant Other, turned the band into arguably the biggest rock group in the world. Significant Other is a far more polished and interesting album than its predecessor, 
perhaps defining the new metal sound through the record's three massive hits, Nookie, Rearranged, and Break Stuff. That last song I just mentioned is their most enduring success, but also the subject of their greatest controversy. On July 24th, Lim Bizkit performed a late afternoon set at the now infamous Woodstock 1999 Festival. As the most popular newish band on the face of the planet at the time, the embrace to Limb Biscuit from the hundreds of thousands of attendees was insane. In the midst of the burning summer heat, the performance of Break Stuff made the crowd absolutely lose their shit, and several attendees started tearing off the plywood from the barricade separating the audience from the band. Fred Durst, maybe not the most self-aware person in 1999, took it upon himself to sing the final song of the set while crowd surfing on a piece of the torn-off plywood. Due to the parallels between the lyrics slash Fred Durst's presentation of Break Stuff and the riots that occurred the following night, Limb Biscuit became the scapegoat, the scapegoat for the chaos that ensued at the Woodstock 99 Festival. Despite the controversy, Limb Biscuit's moment in the spotlight continued for a few more years, especially following their mega-successful 2000 album, Chocolate Starfish and Hot Dog Flavored Water, which sold roughly 8 million copies worldwide and featured some of their most popular songs, including perhaps their biggest radio hit, Rollin' parentheses, Air Raid Vehicle. The first time I heard the term butt rock was when a friend of my cousin's referred to Limb Biscuit as such. I found the term hilarious, insulting, and endearing all at the same time. So why did my cousin's friend, Burn, shout out by the way, refer to Limb Biscuit the way that many view the band, as butt rock? Well, the categorization of them as butt rock comes down to their frontman, Fred Durst. Fred Durst's lyrics, rapping scales, and whiny voice can get pretty cringe. For example, in the 13th track off Significant Other, titled Show Me What You Got, Mr. Durst decides to rhyme different American cities with his deep philosophical musings. Speaking about the home of the Reds and Bangles, Durst states, quote, In Cincinnati, the girls call me daddy. Sharing his thoughts on the capital of Arizona, Fred Durst poetically communicates, quote, Need a Kleenex every time I'm leaving Phoenix. Earlier, I mentioned that a key component of the new metal side of butt rock was the unjustifiable anger, which distinguishes it from the more righteous indignation found on Rage Against the Machine songs, where Zach De La Rocha touched on serious political issues such as systemic racism and the military-industrial complex. Fred Durst's anger doesn't seem to be provoked by anything other than his own desire for rage. Like in the butt rock classic, Break Stuff, Durst opens the song with, quote, It's just one of those days where you don't want to wake up. Everything is fucked. Everybody sucks. You don't really know why, but you want to justify ripping someone's head off. No human contact, and if you interact, your life is on contract. Your best bet is to stay away, motherfucker. It's just one of those days. Despite my regrettably critical comments I just said of my beloved Limbizgit, they're undoubtedly my favorite butt rock band of all time. So, why does Limbizgit fucking rock? Well, first off, Significant Other is the goat of butt rock albums. Like, it's actually a good album. Critics even liked it. Well, kind of. Every song on that record packs a punch, and classics such as Just Like This and Nookie hit like a shot of Bacardi 151. And it's that unrelenting energy found across their entire catalog that taps into something real within our humanity. 
the explosive second half of the bridge of Break Stuff and the pugnaciously staccato chorus of their debut single, Counterfeit, at least for me, gets my heart racing and exponentially increases my desire to take a preemptive ibuprofen, book a chiropractor appointment in advance, and then proceed to some gnarly mosh pit somewhere. So yeah, Limb Biscuit is like an old school Four loco, but in music form. But like a Four loco, Limb Biscuit's music should only be consumed in moderation and not in front of anyone you're trying to impress. Although the United States declared their independence on July 4th, 1776, and won the Revolutionary War on April 19th, 1781, the Constitution was not in full operation until March of 1789. Just under a couple months later, the executive branch, as we know it, came to fruition when George Washington became the nation's first president on April 30th, 1789. In the same vein, Despite the loose idea of butt rock that had been floating around in the early 90s after Core was released, the categorization of butt rock, as we know and love it, didn't arrive until it arrived by storm on June 24, 1997, when My Own Prison by the George Washington of Butt Rock was released. And thus, the final face on my Mount Rushmore of butt rock will present the unassuming face of the original Florida man, Mr. Scott Stapp, representing Creed. Another North Florida band, The Origins of Creed, dates back to 1994 in Tallahassee, Florida. Singer Scott Stapp and guitarist Mark Tremonti had known each other in high school, but once they started attending college at Florida State University, they started writing songs together. They wanted to form a band, and to fill out the rest of the band, Stapp and Tremonti eventually selected Brian Marshall to play bass and Scott Phillips to play drums. They recruited another guy, but he didn't stick, so we don't care about him. Anyways, in true butt rock fashion, their first name was Beyond Cringe. Naming themselves after uh, a phrase and a headline in the local paper, the quartet called themselves Naked Toddler. Oof. They eventually settled on the name Creed, which came from Brian Marshall's previous band, Maddox Creed. In the early going, while a lot of their lyrics focused on Christianity, they still felt that they hadn't established an identifiable sound. That changed at rehearsal one day when Creed constructed a tune called Grip My Soul, which despite never having been released or recorded, provided the band with a sense of their potential style. This discovery led to the creation of My Own Prison, which would eventually serve as their breakthrough single. After playing a bunch of local gigs, Creed got introduced to legendary butt rock producer John Gerswig, who also ended up producing for famous butt rock bands Puddle of Mud and Godsmack. Gerswig produced their debut album, which they initially released independently for only $6,000. That album, of course, My Own Prison. While the album sounds like a lukewarm blend of Alice in Chains' Jar of Flies, Pearl Jam's 10, and anything released in the 90s by Matchbox 20, My Own Prison actually isn't a terrible album, especially compared with the debuts of some other bands on my Mount Rushmore butt rock. At light speed, the album created a buzz around the music industry, so much so that barely two months later, Wind Up Records released, re-released the album. The record became a gargantuan success with all four singles reaching the top three on the rock charts. My Own Prison has gone on to sell over six million copies worldwide, but that record, only the beginning of a massive yet short peak for the Tallahassee-based butt rock legends. For their sophomore album, Creed again tasked John Kerswig with production, and on September 28, 1999, Creed released their crown jewel from the treasure chest of butt rock, the enduring post-grunge classic Human Clay. 
Definitely a heavier record than its predecessor. Human Clay sounds closer to Pearl Jam's Stuntable Pilots and Metallica than to Matchbox 20. Commercially, to call it a massive commercial success wouldn't do it justice. Bolstered by the chart-topping singles higher and with arms wide open, it was the seventh highest selling album of the 1990s, with nearly 12 million copies sold. It was the last studio album to go diamond, which means at least 10 million copies sold, until Adele's 21 in 2011. Creed released one more hit album in 2001 titled Weathered before disbanding in 2004. The band did reunite and put out their fourth studio album in 2009, but it's their first three albums that define the band and elevate them to the incontrovertible status of butt rock royalty. So why are the post-grunge gods considered butt rock? We have to start with Scott Stapp. While by no means a bad singer, he undoubtedly ripped off the vocals of Pearl Jam frontman Eddie Vedder. Vedder's unique baritone voice contains a certain timbre, being only the tip of the iceberg of his powerful and dynamic voice. Scott Stapp took that tip of the iceberg, but didn't provide any substance underneath it. Borrowing the shiny objects of grunge without any depth, which is exactly what Stapp did, is a classic butt rock trait. Additionally, while there certainly exists overlap between Creed and their early 90s grunge influences, the artistry of those acts never reached Creed, and the North Florida butt rockers covered up their largely filler albums with formulaic hits. Take a listen to their big four, as I call it, Higher, With Arms Wide Open, One Last Breath, and My Sacrifice. While they will all stick in your head likely for the remainder of eternity, that's largely because their structure is basically identical. While the dynamics may vary, they were all crafted with a fine-tuned comb to share a structure guaranteed for commercial success. And finally, while Creed's albums brought joy to tens of millions of listeners, critics probably weren't many of them. For example, the generationally successful Human Clay received only two and a half stars from Rolling Stone, two out of four stars from the LA Times, and a C- from Entertainment Weekly. That disconnect between fans and critics with regards to late 90s-early 2000s heavier alt-rock ranks among the top characteristics of butt-rock. So, while everything in my diatribe about Creed was true and sincere, I have to say, I fucking love Creed. Of all the butt-rock bands on the Mount Rushmore, they probably have the most talent. Some of Mark Tremonti's guitar work shows impressive versatility, and drummer Scott Phillips has some funky-ass beats on My Own Prison and a couple of dope-ass fills on Human Clay. Also, With Arms Wide Open is a really good song. Scott Stapp wrote it upon finding out his wife was pregnant. Both the lyrics and vocals are vulnerable, and the instrumentation is interesting, especially in the version of the song with strings. Also, for fuck's sake, the second chorus on One Last Breath, I mean, come on, that bit of auditory ecstasy hits the bloodstream like an espresso martini. Finally, some of their lesser-known singles get gnarly as fuck. What If has the genuine intensity of a deep track from Core or Dirt by Alice in Chains, and Bullets from Weathered channels Faith No More's Angel Dust while Stat pays homage to Lane Staley with brief snippets of Staley's grim timbre during the verses. So while you're not poised to find any of these bands' albums on the next edition of Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Albums, you can find them randomly wandering through most millennials' heads and on many of their Spotify or Apple Music playlists. Despite the vitriol about these bands spoken by critics, and even though none of them have been relevant on pop radio in many years, My Mount Rushmore of Butt Rock still carries a monthly listener total of roughly $47 million on Spotify. So despite whatever criticism, valid or not, Papa Roach, Limbizgit, Nickelback, or Creed may have gotten over the years, 
it's clear. Butt Rock is here to stay. Thanks, y'all, so much for listening. Make sure you tune in to the second part of this episode, which comes out next Tuesday, October 10th. I hope y'all have a great rest of your day, and whatever it brings, hopefully music is involved. Again, I'm Dove Brenner, and this is Hot Cakes from a 90s stand. Take care.